Amen. Uh, turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 4, please. Luke chapter 4. Uh, let's start reading in uh, verse 14. We'll read down through verse 21. This is Jesus in his own hometown of Nazareth, a city that he uh, grew up in. And it's uh, just following the fact that uh, or the, the time when he was anointed of the Holy Ghost, when uh, he was baptized by John the Baptist in the Jordan River and the Holy Ghost came upon him in uh, bodily shape as a dove. The Bible tells us that uh, soon thereafter he went uh, into the wilderness and the devil tempted him for a period of, uh, well, he was out there for 40 days without eating and then during that time the devil tempted him. We sometimes say ca uh, casually that the devil tempted him for 40 days, but that's really not what the Bible says. The Bible says that he fasted for 40 days and then the devil tempted him. We don't know how long the temptation took place, but nevertheless it says that in verse 14, following that uh, temptation, and Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit unto Galilee. And there went out a fame of him throughout all the region round about. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified of all. And he came to Nazareth, so that means he's been other places first. If you, uh, it'll tell us further that uh, Capernaum is a place that he's been to, and he's done signs and wonders and miracles there. And he came to Nazareth, verse 16, where he had been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up for to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he had opened the book, he found the place where it was written. Now, this is Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, and he gave it again to the minister, and sat down. And the eyes of them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him. And he began to say unto them, This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. Now, the, the word preach here is the word proclaim. And as a matter of fact, other translations say uh, uh, concerning verse 19 that the last thing that Jesus mentions on the list is to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Um, most of us don't have a whole lot of uh, knowledge about uh, Jewish history and the way things work and the law of Moses and the, the commands and the feasts and, and those kind of things. So a lot of times this, uh, this kind of goes beyond us, goes over our heads. But the acceptable year of the Lord that's being spoken of here is the year of Jubilee. And Jesus is saying that the Spirit of the Lord is upon him to do several things, to preach the gospel to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted. He's, he's literally saying, I'm come to redeem uh, or I'm come to uh, uh, perform healing works, forgiveness, works of forgiveness of sins. You remember Jesus not only healed the sick, but he also forgave people's sins. And that caused the, the, uh, the Jewish people a real problem. In Mark chapter 2, for example, where Jesus is preaching in the house, uh, the American Standard Version says it's his house, which throws a lot of people because a lot of people think Jesus didn't have any place to lay his head, but that's not really what the Scripture says. So anyway, Jesus is preaching in the house, and it's so full that nobody can get in. So these four guys bring this crippled fellow, and they couldn't find any way to get in the door, so they went up on the roof and took the roof off, took the tiling off the roof, and let him down in the middle of the crowd. And when Jesus saw them, saw their faith, the Bible says, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. And the religious leaders had a hard time with that. They said, who can forgive sins but God alone? And they're right about that. Only God could do that. They didn't realize that it was the Son of God in their midst. And Jesus said, which is easier to say uh, to, to someone? To say, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk? And he goes further and he says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth 
to forgive sins, he said to the sick of the palsy, arise, take up your bed and walk. And he did. Now, Jesus knew what most people don't know then and now, and that is the same price that is necessary to be paid for sin is the price that was paid for sickness, which we know of as the sacrifice of Jesus, his very own blood, his precious blood. Consequently, on the earth, Jesus forgave sin and he healed sickness. Now, here's the question for us. How could Jesus forgive sins on the earth when he hadn't yet been to the cross? If the blood of Jesus is the answer for sin, and it's the only answer there is for sin, then how could Jesus forgive sin here on the earth? I'll go even further. If, and we know that Romans five twelve says, wherefore, as by one man, speaking of Adam, sin entered the world and death, including sickness, by sin. If sin wasn't dealt with, then how did Jesus heal the sick? The only way sin could ever be dealt with is by the blood of Jesus. So how could Jesus either forgive sin here on the earth or heal heal the sick? Why isn't Jesus preaching saying, I'm come to, to die for mankind so that man can be forgiven and so that man can be healed? When Jesus said that the Spirit of the Lord has anointed him, and one of the things he's anointed to do is to proclaim, to preach, literally proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord... That's talking about the year of Jubilee. The year of Jubilee came around every 50th year. Now turn back with me to Leviticus chapter 25. I want you to see some things that the Bible says about the year of Jubilee. What does it mean? What What does it signify? What does it stand for? They knew, and most of us don't. In Leviticus chapter 25, God is giving Moses instruction for what things need to be done and how they should be done. Let's start in verse 8. And thou shalt number seven Sabbaths of years. In other words, seven times seven years, which is 49. Thou shalt number seven Sabbaths of years unto thee, seven times seven years. The space of the seventh Sabbath of the year shall be unto thee forty and nine years. Then shalt thou cause the trumpet of the Jubilee to sound on the tenth day of the seventh month in the day of atonement. Please notice that. The year of Jubilee starts on the day of atonement. Then start with the calendar year. Starts on the day of atonement. Then shalt thou cause the trumpet of the jubilee to sound on the tenth day of the seventh month in the day of the atonement. Shall you make the trumpet sound throughout all your land. And you shall hallow the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty. Please get that. See that phrase. Proclaim liberty throughout all the land unto all the inhabitants thereof. It shall be a jubilee unto you and you shall return every man unto his possession. And you shall return every man unto his family. A jubilee that shall that 50th year be unto you. You shall not sow, neither reap that which groweth of itself in it, nor gather the grapes in it of thy vine undressed. For it is the jubilee, it shall be holy unto you. You shall eat the increase thereof out of the field. In the year of the jubilee, this jubilee, you shall return every man unto his possession. Now, folks, you know that I, as well as I do that the, the law of Moses and the, the, uh, the feasts and all the, those kinds of things represent something for us in the church. We don't have to keep the Day of Atonement. We don't have to keep the Feast of Israel. Some people do. They, they you know, go along with the rituals and, and stuff like that, and that's fine. I, if that's what they want to do, that's okay. But all of those things have been fulfilled in one way or another in, uh, by the work of Jesus. 
That's why we don't have to keep the law of Moses. We're not required to keep the law of Moses because Jesus fulfilled the law. That means he did, he, he, uh, to fulfill means he completed the law. There's not one thing, there's not one part of the Old Testament type There's not one of the Old Testament rituals. There's not one of the Old Testament ordinances. There's not one of the Old Testament feasts that wasn't fulfilled or completed by something that Jesus has already done. So we don't have to keep doing what he did. Now, again, if somebody wants to do that, I know some people keep the Passover and and that kind of stuff, and and that's okay. I'm I'm not trying to split hairs with anybody or, or pick a fight over something. I'm just saying that Jesus is our, the Bible says, Christ is our Passover, which was sacrificed for us. So the Passover might be good in the fact that it's instructive about what Jesus has done, but there's nothing about keeping the Passover that's going to uh, add to what Jesus has already completed. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? Well, then what about the year of Jubilee is, uh, points to Jesus? It's the 50th year, and notice certain things about it. Jesus said that he came to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. That's the year of Jubilee. And the people that he's talking to, because they're Jews, they know what he's saying. Furthermore, he goes on a couple of verses later, and he sits down after he closes the book, and he said, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. Well, it wasn't the year of Jubilee. It wasn't the 50th year. So what does he mean? That gets people's heads spinning. But they realize that those scriptures in Isaiah that he's reading from, those scriptures are a part of a group of scriptures going back to chapter 53, including chapter 53, where it talks about what the Messiah will do and what the Messiah will accomplish. And that it extends all the way out into chapter 60 and 61. Chapter 61, verses 1 and 2 is where Jesus is reading from. But what we understand is Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. And so when Jesus proclaims the year of Jubilee, he's saying the Spirit of the Lord has anointed me and sent me to proclaim the year of Jubilee. But notice that the year of Jubilee can't start until the Day of Atonement. Now, let's back up, talk about the Day of Atonement a little bit so that we make sure that we all have an understanding of that. The Day of Atonement was the one time every year, one day of the year, that the high priest was to make a sacrifice, a one-time sac- or a once-a-year sacrifice, one time per year sacrifice, to cover... Or atone for the sins of Israel. Everybody was required to bring their own sacrifice. But after the day full of slaughtering people's sacrifice. That was done by all the lesser priests. Then the high priest would take the one sacrifice. And he would offer it. He would slit the throat and gather the blood. And he would take that blood and he would place it. Take it into the Holy of Holies. And place it in the mercy seat. Now the mercy seat was the little place. There's a little bowl type thing. As we understand it on top of the Ark of the Covenant. It, the way it was set up, there were angels that had their wings folded toward the bowl. And so this thing is right in the middle of it. It was called the mercy seat because it was the place of substitution. In other words, the blood that was taken from the sacrifice, the sacrificial lamb, had to be placed on that mercy seat before any blessings of God could occur for the people. Now, in a normal day of atonement, an average year, it would just simply mean that the sins of Israel are forgiven or literally covered up masked for a one-year period of time until the next day of atonement. But the year of Jubilee was a little bit different because not only did it cover the sins of Israel for that year, but on that 50th year, everything that anybody had lost during between the last 50th year of uh, the day of uh, the last Jubilee and that present day of Jubilee had to be returned. So if you were in debt, your debt was canceled. 
And folks, do not think for a minute that the Jews didn't know how this stuff worked. If you were supposed to pay back a debt, it was scheduled for you to pay up before the year of Jubilee. Everybody used it to their advantage because they realized it was a time of liberty. Whatever you were in bondage to, whatever you were indebted to, whatever you were bound to, you were released from because that's a part of the way God set things up. It was part of the, part of the reason for that is so that God could ensure that Israel never lost its land. It had to return every man to his possession. So you couldn't buy land except for a 50-year period of time because it always had to go back. And everything else that you owed, everything else that you were indebted to, everything else that you were bound to was released or you were released from it on that day of Jubilee. But it couldn't take place until several things happened. First of all, the day of atonement sacrifice had to be made. The mercy seat had to be covered with blood. Third, the trumpet had to sound. That trumpet was the proclamation that now the year of Jubilee has come. And Jesus is saying in Nazareth, in the synagogue, in Nazareth, he's saying, I'm here because the Spirit of the Lord has sent me to proclaim or to blow the trumpet for the year of Jubilee. Now, as far as Jesus is concerned, as far as we're concerned, the year of Jubilee wasn't a one-year period. Jesus connects it with the preaching of the gospel. He connects it with his work here on the earth. But again, the question has to be asked, how could the year of Jubilee begin, whether figuratively or literally, without the atonement being made first? Literally what Jesus is saying in Nazareth. He's saying, I am the sacrifice. I'm the Messiah. I'm the one that will offer myself as the substitute for mankind. Not just Israel, but for mankind. This day is the scripture fulfilled in your ears. Because of the sacrifice that I am here to make. It's the year of Jubilee. Every man will be restored to his possession. Now, what does that mean? Well, folks, please understand that in the Garden of Eden, when Adam sinned, man lost everything. He lost his right standing with God. He lost his ability to dominate the earth in the way that God originally intended. He didn't lose his authority entirely. But he lost the ability for his words to come to pass in the perfect, with no sin, no presence of sin way, just as God created the earth in doing. I'm not sure we understand what all that really means. But man lost everything. He lost the ability to walk on the earth without, free from sickness and disease. He lost his ability to till the earth without curse. You remember part of the curse was that the earth would bring forth thorns and thistles and it would only produce for man through the sweat of his brow. It wasn't that way before man sinned. Man lost everything. He lost everything where provision is concerned. He lost everything where bodily health is concerned. He lost everything where his relationship with God and righteousness was concerned. Man lost everything. And Jesus came to return every man to his possession. He came to return every man to his possession. He came to return every man to his possession. How? Through the atoning sacrifice. Old Testament is atoning sacrifice because it was a year-to-year sacrifice. Jesus came as the redeemer, meaning an eternal sacrifice, once and for all. 
The Bible says in Hebrews chapter 9 that uh, when Jesus was raised from the dead, he entered once and for all into the holy place, the heavenly holy of holies, and presented his blood before the Father to make an eternal sacrifice for mankind. Jesus is proclaiming the acceptable year of the Lord. In other words, he's saying the year of his redemption or the age of his redemption that he has come to the earth to make sacrifice for is the restoration for every man unto the original possession. Now turn back with me to Isaiah chapter 53. Isaiah chapter 53 is the great messianic chapter, is the redemption chapter, because it identifies the works that the Messiah, the Redeemer, would do. Let's start reading in verse, uh, um, well, where do we want to start? Let's start in verse, um, well, let's just start in verse 1. Who has believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? Now, folks, the reason why I'm going to Isaiah 53 is this is the day of atonement prophecy. The eternal sacrifice that's going to be made, not the once a year day of atonement. Atonement is an Old Testament word because it means the covering over of sin. Jesus didn't cover your sins. He removed them. So Old Testament terminology is the day of atonement, the day of the covering of sin. New Testament terminology is redemption. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law. He's our redeemer because he's removed sin. And this tells how he did it. Who has believed our report and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? Notice that those two are connected. The arm of the Lord or the power of God is revealed to those that believe the report. The power of God was demonstrated and made available for all of mankind, but not all of mankind takes advantage of it. Salvation was made available for all of mankind because Jesus died for the sins of the world. Not just the sins of the Jews, but the sins of the Christians. He died for the sins of the world. Well, why isn't the world saved? Because they don't believe the report. And that's the only thing that keeps them out of being family, part of the family of God. They change the believing the report part and they change their, their eternity. Who has believed our report and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he, talking about the sacrifice, the Messiah shall grow up before him, before God, as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground, spiritually dry. He has no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. In other words, that says, that's telling us that Jesus looked like a normal person. Now, I imagine Jesus is having movie star looks and being the best-looking guy around, big, strong guy, and, I mean, ever just uh, everybody wants to be around this guy because of the way he looks. But the Bible says that's not the way it was. I believe everybody did want to be around Jesus because of a magnetism that was from within him. But it's not because of what he looked like. The Bible seems to be indicating that Jesus didn't look any, there was nothing special about the way he looked. That's hard for me to accept. Because I've got my own ideas about things. But that's what the Bible says. Verse 3, he is despised and rejected of men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. This word sorrows is the word makob, and it's translated pains in other places in Scripture. This word grief is the word sickness, or I'm sorry, it's the word coli, and it's translated sickness in other places. 
He is a man of pains and acquainted with sickness. And we hid as it were our faces from him, and he he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Verse 4, surely he has borne our griefs, our pains, and carried our, I'm sorry, borne our griefs, meaning sickness, and carried our sorrows, meaning pains. Yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. I'm going to read this from some other translations in a minute, but I want you to see in the King James. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment. And who shall declare his generation? He was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. He made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. That word death is plural in the original Hebrew. He made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his deaths. Plural. Jesus died physically and spiritually. Because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. Now, this word grief is the same word, coli, up in verse 3 and verse 4. And it's translated in other places in Scripture as sickness. It pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. Other translation says, he has made him sick. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin... He shall, prolong, uh, he shall see his seed. He shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous servant justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore will I divide, a portion, divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he has poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bare the sin of many, And made intercession for the transgressors. Now, there's a couple things I want you to see about this. First of all, I want to read from Dr. Young, Young's literal translation, several of these verses. I won't read the whole thing, but let me start with verse 3. He is despised and left of men, a man of pains, that's the word Hebrew word makob, and acquainted with sickness, the Hebrew word koli. And as one hiding the face from us, he is despised and we esteemed him not. Surely our sicknesses, verse 4, surely our sicknesses he hath borne, and our pains he has carried them. And we, we have esteemed him plagued, smitten of God and afflicted, verse 5, and he is pierced for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace is upon him, and by his bruise there is healing to us. Verse 6, all of us like sheep have wandered, each to his own way we have turned. And Jehovah has caused to meet on him the punishment of us all. Now, remember King James says he laid on him the iniquity of us all. Dr. Young translates this, Jehovah has caused to meet on him the punishment of us all. Verse 10, and Jehovah has delighted to bruise him. He has made him sick. Here's this word, Hebrew word, koli. If his soul does make an offering for guilt, he seeth seed, he prolongeth days. Verse 12, with transgressors he was numbered, and he, the sin of many, has borne, and for transgressors he intercedes. Now, Dr. Isaac Lesser's translation, uh, Lesser's translation is the only one that's accepted by the Orthodox Jews to be accurate. Dr. Isaac Lesser says this, 
Verse 3, he was despised and shunned of men, a man of pains and acquainted with disease. But on, Verse 4, but only our diseases did he bear himself, and our pains he carried. Verse 5, and through his bruises was healing granted to us. Verse 10, but the Lord was pleased to crush him through disease. Rotherham's translation says of the 10th verse, he has laid on him sickness. Now, here's what I want you to understand. This uh, chapter 53 particularly is recognized, everybody, every Bible scholar recognizes that this is the Messianic chapter. This is the most concise description of any of the Old Testament prophecies of what the Messiah would do, the work that he would accomplish in order to bring redemption to mankind. Now, the words that are used, again, it's a little blind to us because we don't understand Jewish culture. We don't understand Jewish history, especially ancient Jewish history. But the words that are used, the word bear and born or bear and carried, these are Levitical terms where it talks about he carried our pains. He bore our iniquities. These are Levitical terms. They're words that are used, the same words that are used in Leviticus when God was instructing Moses on the Day of Atonement for how to make the, or what to do regarding the scapegoat. Now, let me explain that to you. On the Day of Atonement, we've already talked about the sacrificial lamb that was sacrificed and the blood that was placed on the mercy seat. But there were two sacrifices that were made on that day. The high priest, first, before he ever killed the the sacrificial lamb, the one to make an atonement for Israel, the high priest would take another, just as pure, just as uh, spotless, a lamb, so to speak, it were really rams, but a lamb, and there were lots that were drawn. Nobody knew ahead of time which one was going to be which. One would be sacrificed, the other would be what's called the scapegoat. And just before it took place, lots would be cast. They would be examined by the high priest and made sure that everything was right with them and they were spotless and no blemish and, and so forth. And so they would cast lots. The high priest would cast lots. And one of them would be chosen to be the scapegoat. And before the sacrifice was made, the, the high priest would take the scapegoat and lay his hands on the head of this ram and he would pronounce the curses that really belonged to Israel. The curses of disobedience, the curses of sin, and all this kind of stuff. Big, long line, big long list, big, long uh, recitation, according to the rabbis. All these terrible curses that were pronounced on, uh, that belonged to Israel because of their sin, were, but were pronounced and literally laid on, through the laying on of hands, were laid on the scapegoat. Then one of the lesser priests would take this scapegoat and carry it out into the wilderness, lead it out into the wilderness. Far, far away. And once it was taken out into the wilderness, it was left in such a place where it would either die from uh, lack of food and water or it would be eaten by other animals. Nobody ever really knew what happened to the scapegoat. It may be that the judgment of God fell upon him because it was a symbol. It was a type. It was the substitute for Israel because somebody has to pay for sin. Judgment for sin has to be meted out. In order for God to be just, something has to be judged for the sins of mankind. Well, that's not what happened with the sacrifice on the Day of Atonement. The sacrifice on the Day of Atonement was about providing blood. It wasn't about providing sin or putting sin or the placement of sin. It was about providing blood. The Bible says without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. In other words, God could not look away from the sins of Israel without something shedding blood. But the scapegoat didn't shed blood in the same way. It wasn't sacrificed. 
it was taken into a land not inhabited outside the camp. The Bible says those two qualifications, a land uninhabited and outside the camp, way outside the camp. And it was taken out there and the judgment of God in some way or another that nobody ever knew. It's not like the priest would stand back and look from afar to see what happened to the scapegoat. He was commanded to leave it there and walk away from it, never to be seen again. And that's the type of what happened to Jesus after the cross. That's the type of Jesus in the earth, the belly of the earth, three days and three nights. Mankind's still arguing about what happened to Jesus during that period of time. But the Bible tells us that that's where the judgment of God fell upon Jesus. And the scripture says, we just saw it, I think it was Young's translation in verse 10, or verse 6 rather, he laid upon him the punishment of us all. Now, the scapegoat, like I said, there are two words that are used in this chapter talking about their Levitical terms and they're referencing the Messiah as the scapegoat. One is he bore our sins. The other is he carried them. Not just our sins, but it says he carried our sickness as well as he carried our sins. And these two terms are Levitical terms used for the scapegoat in the carrying away once and for all or the bearing away of a burden. The implication behind these words themselves is it's a very heavy burden, but it's done as a substitute. It's not like the scapegoat was something that just entered into the fellowship of our sufferings. He suffered for us or for them. In the same way, Jesus was our sacrifice because he offered his precious blood for our redemption, but he was also the scapegoat because he bore both our sins and our sicknesses once and for all. Yeah, but Pastor Mike, why does the King James only talk about bearing our sorrows and griefs? Turn with me over to Matthew chapter 8. I'm so glad God was smart enough to know what people would argue about. Matthew chapter 8. Verse 16, when the evening was come, they brought unto him, Jesus, many that were possessed with devils, and he cast out the spirits with his word and healed all that were sick. Everybody say all. That word is maybe the most important word in this whole series, this whole set of scriptures. He healed all that were sick. It does not say he healed the sick. It does not say he healed many that were sick. It says he healed all that were sick. Now, let me ask you a question. What does the church world say? That, Jesus, or the, that the reason was that Jesus healed the sick. Number one is to prove he was the son of God. Right? God wanted to make sure to advertise well for Jesus. And so he wanted Jesus to prove that he was the son of God. So that's the reason why Jesus used healing and miracle power is to prove who he was, prove he was the son of God. I've got a problem with that. And here's the problem. Why did Jesus heal so many people and tell them, don't say, don't tell them what happened to you? Because if God's trying to pronounce Jesus as being his son through healing, then every time, and this happened several times throughout the scripture, several, I don't know, three or four times maybe, throughout the four gospels, it said Jesus told certain people when they were healed, don't tell what happened. If that's Jesus telling people not to tell that he's the son of God, then that means he's working contrary 
to the will of God if God is wanting everybody to find out that he's the son of God. Yet Jesus said, my will is to do the, or my meat is to do the will of the Father. That means that Jesus couldn't do anything that would contradict or countermand the will of God. And if God wants Jesus to heal to prove that he's the son of God, then Jesus is sinning by telling people to not tell what happened or who did this. Can you see that? Now, you may consider that to be a minor point. Some people, I've even heard it preached. Well, Jesus used reverse psychology on people. He told people not to tell what happened, knowing that they'd go out and tell. That kind of makes Jesus a partner to a lie then, doesn't it? That makes Jesus a manipulator instead of a redeemer. Now, folks, if Jesus said don't tell what happened, it's because he intended for them not to tell. Now, in some places, one case in particular, it says the the guy went out and published it anyway. He couldn't keep his mouth shut. He was so happy to be healed, he couldn't keep his mouth shut. And that created the multitudes that came to Jesus as a result. Well, that wasn't Jesus' intent if he was being honest when he said don't tell. So if the church world says by and large that Jesus healed to prove that he was the son of God, wouldn't this, wouldn't somewhere the Bible, wouldn't that confirm it? But in fact, you can't find one place where it ever says that Jesus healed to prove he's the son of God. Not one scripture in the, in the four gospels, not one time. Now, if that was, if the church world is right, and that was the only reason that Jesus healed, then God did us a great injustice by not giving us a record of it. When the evening was come, they brought unto him many that were possessed with devils. And he cast out the spirits with his word and healed. This is verse 16 again. And healed all that were sick that it might be fulfilled. In other words, here's the reason why he healed all that were sick. Not to prove he was the son of God. But that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses. Now, folks, whether you know it or not, Matthew, by the Holy Ghost, gives us a commentary of Isaiah 53, 4. Isaiah 53, 4 in the King James says, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Surely he has, this identifies what griefs and sorrows really means. Himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses. So according to the Holy Ghost, griefs and sorrows has to mean Bodily sickness and disease. See, some people will say, well, not every time the words koli and makob in the Hebrew are used, not every time are they translated sickness and disease. And they're right. They're not. Well, what, since they're translated different things in different places, what are we to understand that it's supposed to mean in Isaiah 53 when it talks about the work of the Redeemer? The messianic work of Jesus. The Holy Ghost knew the argument and he gave us a record, gave us his own commentary. Jesus healed all that were sick that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses. Now, let me ask you a question. Why would everybody have to be, everybody have to be healed for Isaiah 53, 4 to be fulfilled? I don't want to get too deep here, but stay with me for just a minute. When we see people like the woman with the issue of blood in Mark chapter 5, you remember the story? A certain woman had an issue of blood 12 years and had suffered many things of many physicians and had spent all she had and there was nothing better but rather grew worse. When she heard of Jesus, she came in the press behind and touched his garment for she said, if I may touch but his clothes, I shall be whole. 
And straightway the fountain of her blood was dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of that plague. And Jesus immediately, knowing in himself that virtue or power had gone out of him, turned him about in the press and said, Who touched me? And the disciples said, Master, thou seest the multitude thronging thee, and sayest thou who touched me? But he looked round about to see her that had done this thing. But the woman, fearing and trembling, knowing what was done in her, fell down before him and told him all the truth. And he said unto her, verse 34, Daughter, thy faith has made thee whole. Go in peace and behold thy plague. You remember the story? What does that story tell us? Does that story tell us that healing is for everybody? Does it? If that's the only story of healing we had, could we conclude without a question of a doubt that healing is for everybody? No, we couldn't. What does it tell us? It tells us certain things. It tells us that Jesus had healing power. It tells us that it was God's will for Jesus to heal the sick while he was here on the earth, at least, even if he didn't know who was sick in the crowd. Furthermore, it tells us how people received their healing when Jesus was here on the earth, and that's the operation of faith. That's what it tells us. But it doesn't tell us that healing is for everybody. We'd have to take other scriptures and put them together to come up with the idea or the understanding that healing is for me because the woman with the issue of blood is healed, was healed. And besides that, if that's the only healing story we had, how would we know that healing is for anybody no matter what they had instead of just people that were healed, to, in other words, allowing people to be healed from an issue of blood? How would that tell us that healing from cancer is available? It wouldn't. It would show us God's attitude toward healing. And we know we can put other scriptures together and know that God never changes. So if it's okay or God's will was, uh, was performed for this woman to be healed, then we could say God wants everybody to be healed. But we have to take other scriptures and put other things together to come up with an understanding from just that story concerning healing. Are you with me? Don't worry, I'll bail you out here in just a second. But we wouldn't know that healing is for everybody if we had just that story or any other of the other just individual stories of healings. Do you know why? Because healing was a blessing for them. The people that were healed in Jesus' ministry received a blessing that was for them while Jesus was here on the earth because of the work that he was sent to do. But they were neither redeemed from sickness nor redeemed from sin until after Jesus went to the cross. But here in Matthew chapter 8, verses 16 and 17, it tells us that Jesus healed all that were sick that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses. Why is that an important issue? Because it says in Isaiah 53, 4, surely he has borne our sicknesses and carried our pains. Who does our mean? You use a sentence and you say our, who are you talking about? You're talking about you and whoever reads it or whoever hears it. Our always means me and you. Surely he has borne our sickness and carried our pains. Did you notice it didn't say he carried theirs? 
In other words, what Mark 8, 16 and 17 are telling us is that the, in order for the fulfillment of Isaiah 53, 4, the prophecy that in, at the time that Mark 8, or Matthew 8 takes place hadn't even yet occurred. But in order for that prophecy to be fulfilled, healing had to be accomplished for everyone because it's the redemptive work of Jesus. See, now some people take these scriptures and say, well, see, Jesus fulfilled it when he was here on the earth. Well, how is that possible when Matthew, when, uh, uh, Matthew 8, 16 and 17 is talking about Isaiah 53 and 4, 53 verse 4, and Isaiah 53 4, verse 4 didn't take place until after Jesus went to the cross. How could he fulfill something that only the cross can fulfill when he hadn't yet been to the cross? See, the point is, folks, that the Bible is telling us Now, if this were the only example that we had, if this was the only healing example that we had in all of Scripture, we could know without a a shadow of a doubt that healing is for everybody. Because Jesus healed all that were sick. If just one was left sick, then Isaiah 53, 4, Isaiah chapter 53, verse 4, that's what 53, 4 means. I hope you understand that. I know I'm talking quick, but I want you to understand what I mean. If only one person was left sick, then Isaiah 53 verse 4 would not have been fulfilled. Why? Because surely he has borne our sicknesses and carried our pains. And with his stripes we are healed. Can you see that? Now how was Isaiah 53 4 fulfilled? By the healing of all that were sick when Jesus was here on the earth. What about the actual literal fulfillment? See, Jesus could say and the Holy Ghost could say that this verse was fulfilled through the action of Jesus healing all that were sick. Because Isaiah 53 verse 4 was about his work on the cross, his redemptive work on the cross that would do away once and for all with sin and sickness along with some other things, but those are the two that we're talking about tonight. Do away with sin and sickness. Do away with, not cover them over, not forgive them. But do away with sin and sickness once and for all because Jesus was here on the earth to be the sacrifice that's going to the cross and shedding his blood. So what Jesus did here on his earthly ministry was the beginning of the demonstration of the power of God to forgive sin and to heal sickness that would be carried out and completed when Jesus finally spilled his blood once and for all on the cross. So it was a blessing for them, but it's a bearing or a carrying away once and for all for us. See, these people weren't saved. They couldn't be saved. The guy that was on the, the, the guy that was carried by the four friends let down through the roof in Mark chapter 2. When Jesus said, man, your sins are forgiven you, he didn't get saved. There was not a removal of sin on his part. Jesus is simply acting in God's stead or on his behalf by saying, I forgive your sins. Well, what sins did this man commit? See, we think of, when we talk about sins, we think of what did this guy do? He didn't do anything. He wasn't sick because of something he did. He was subject to the law of sin and death on the earth. Why? Because of Adam's sin. Again, Romans five twelve. Wherefore, as by one man, Adam, sin entered the world and death, meaning sickness, by sin. So unless God does something about the sin problem, it's impossible to do something about the sickness problem. 
because sin is the origin of sickness. And again, I'm not talking about personal sin. I'm not talking about this guy was crippled because of some sin he committed. I'm saying because of Adam's sin, it opened the door to every sickness and every disease known to mankind. Then and now. So unless Jesus does something about the sin problem, it's impossible to cure the sickness problem. Well, what's the answer for the sin problem? The cross of Jesus is the only answer there is. So what's the answer to the sickness problem? The cross of Jesus. Surely. Only time in verse in chapter 53 in the Messianic chapter, the only time the word surely, S-U-R-E-L-Y, the only time the word surely is used is talking about sickness and disease. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Surely he was a substitute for sin and sickness. Surely he was a substitute for, I said sin and sickness, it's sickness and pains. Surely, without a shadow of a doubt, truly, he was the substitute once and for all for sickness and pains. Folks, if Jesus was the substitute for sickness and pains, why are we subject to them? He was a substitute for sin. Why are we subject to sin? We're not. Because we've been made righteous by the blood of Jesus. Jesus was made sin for us. 1 Corinthians 5 verse 21 it is. I think it is. He was made sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? That means there was an exchange. Jesus was made sin so that we would be made righteous. What does that righteousness do for us? It removes us from the dominion of sin. Now you can still sin if you want to. You can still live in sin if you want to. You have the free will and choice to be subject or to subject yourself to sin if you want to. But Jesus did something about it once and for all. Which means because we've been made righteous, we have within us, whether you've partaken of it, whether you've grown in it, whether you've developed it or not, doesn't matter. We have the potential within us to overcome every temptation of every sin. Right? Whether or not we do is up to us. It's whether or not we know what belongs to us and whether or not we act in the, uh, according to the power that has been given to us to defeat and overcome sin here in the earth. But we have the potential for it. You have the potential to live a sinless life from the point in time where you're born again because being born again means to be made righteous by the blood of Jesus, to be made a new creature, a righteous new creature. Now, we understand it doesn't work that way in practice because as baby Christians, we don't know what belongs to us and it takes us a while to learn and so forth. But you have the potential from that point forward, even today, from this point forward, through learning what belongs to you and applying the power of God from within, you have the power, the ability to never sin again for the rest of your days here on the earth. If that's not true, then God lied to us. I'm not saying that's the way you're going to do. You may stumble just like I may stumble. But we have the potential to never stumble into sin again. In other words, we have the potential to never again be subject to sin and death. Never be subject to sin. Why? Because Jesus was made our sin substitute. 
Well, then does it not have to be true then? Since Jesus was the same substitute for sickness and paid the same price for sickness and disease, is it not also true that we have the potential to never be subject to sickness again from this day forward? Now, again, it's going to require the same thing. It's going to require us learning who we are in Christ. What power belongs to us and appropriating that power. Learning that sickness is a temptation just like sin is a temptation. Or maybe I should say it this way. There is a temptation to be sick just like there's a temptation to, be, to, to uh, operate or act in sin. Commit sin. But it's all the same thing. In fact, the Bible goes so far as to say, Paul went so far as to say that Jesus, through his work on the cross, his death, burial, and resurrection, abolished death. Well, we know that means he didn't do away with it as far as its presence in the earth, but he did away with its power over us once and for all. Surely he has borne our sicknesses and carried our pains. Surely he has done that. Again, Matthew 8, 16 and 17. When the evening was come, they brought unto him many that were possessed with devils. And he cast out the spirits with his word and healed all that were sick, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses. Well, if he took them, why are we bearing them? If he carried them away to a land not inhabited and outside the camp, what are we still, still dealing with them for? Because we haven't figured out what belongs to us. You know, so many times people come to me and, and, and they'll say, Pastor Mike, pray for me. Pray for me to be healed. When what they ought to be saying is, teach me what the word says about what Jesus did for my sickness or did to accomplish my healing so that I can learn to take hold of it. Because the Bible says he sent his word and healed us. Doesn't say he sent some special power that certain people are going to have. It says he sent his word and healed us. He sent his word and healed us. That means through the knowledge of the word, through the knowledge of what Jesus has already done, not going to do. Jesus isn't coming back to the earth to hang on the cross for another second or two for you or for me or for anybody else. The price was paid once and for all. Just as we can say with absolute certainty to any unsaved person, no matter what they've done in their life, they can be the worst serial killer and rapist and, and terrorist or anything else. If someone genuinely turns their heart to the Lord, God will save them. There is not a sin that's too great for God to forgive because Jesus has already carried away sin and sickness. We don't like to think in those terms. We like to think that some people will get what they deserve as far as eternity is concerned. Because that's not the way it works. Jesus died for the sins of the world, not just the sins of the people that we like. So no matter what somebody came up with, no matter how shocked we might be if they said, but I, I want to get saved, Pastor Mike, but I've done these terrible things in my life, no matter how shocked we may be, we could say with absolute certainty, if you're sincere in your heart, you believe Jesus died for your sins, then we could lead them into salvation. We can bring them into the family of God, right? Why? Because Jesus bore their sins and carried away their iniquities. Why then do we wonder when somebody comes for healing, whether or not it's going to work. When Jesus 
Just as surely as Jesus was made sin so that we would be made righteous, Jesus was made sick so that we would be healed. Same work on the cross. Not even two different events. Same work of Jesus' sacrifice and resurrection. Why do we wonder? Surely he has borne our sicknesses and carried our pains. Jesus healed them all that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying himself took our infirmities and bare our sicknesses. Folks, there is no wiggle room here. It's absolute. It may not be absolute in our understanding. We may not yet have grasped the reality of it, but it's absolute. Just as surely as we could say to the worst sinner that we could imagine, salvation was available to Adolf Hitler. Now, from a fleshly standpoint, we may be glad that he didn't get it because he deserved hell, perhaps, if anybody does. But just with the same certainty that we could say, no matter what sin, no matter what wrong somebody has done in their life, salvation is available because Jesus took away, he bore away sins and iniquities. With the same certainty, we could say in every case of sickness and disease, Jesus bore away sickness, Jesus bore away disease. He carried it once and for all. For anybody, for the church world to say that anybody has to carry their own disease because maybe God's teaching them or some other stupid reason that they come up with. For anybody to claim that is to say that even though the charge against somebody is dropped, they still have to spend their life in prison. Folks, it's absolute. Surely he has borne our sicknesses and carried our pains as our substitute. He bore them so you didn't have to. He carried them away so that you not have to deal with it. And folks, I would submit to you that you have the same right and the same ability, the same God-given ability to stand in the face of sickness and disease and say, just like when you're tempted to sin, it is written. You can say in the face of sickness and disease, it is written, Jesus took my infirmities and bore my sicknesses. Therefore, I refuse to be sick in Jesus' name. And if the blood of Jesus means anything, that sickness has to go. I think we ought to talk to sickness just like we talk to the devil. You can't stay in my body because Jesus paid the price for you. God made Jesus to be sick. And with his stripes, we were healed. Same substitution. Same one-time substitution took place for sickness as it did for sin. Whose sickness did he carry? Ours. Now, what's, what's amazing is that some in the church world will say, well, no, Jesus paid the price for sin, but he didn't pay the price for sickness. They'll say it this way. This is a theological term. Sickness is not part of the atonement, or healing is not part of the atonement. Healing is not in the atonement. Yet the same words, our, are spoken of when it talks about sin as when it talks about sickness. How do they think they can have it both ways? 
No, our means he took everybody's sin, but our doesn't mean he took everybody's sickness. No, our means our. The same people he took sin for, he took sickness for. Well, who was that? Our. Us. Well, who did he leave out? He didn't leave anybody out when it comes to sin. Well, who did he leave out when it comes to sickness? Not one person. Surely. Truly. It doesn't say surely he has borne our sins. It says surely he has borne our sickness and carried our pain. Jesus has done the same finished work for you to be healed as he did for you to be redeemed from sin. Redeemed from sickness and redeemed from from sin are one part of one in the same package purchased by the blood of Jesus. It's just as real. It's just as much a reality for sickness as it is for sin. Let's pray. Oh, Father, what a privilege it is to know the truth of your word. Thank you that Jesus took our infirmities and bore our sicknesses. And with his stripes, we are healed. Thank you, Father, that Jesus proclaimed the year of Jubilee. The church age is the year of Jubilee, where every man is restored to his possession. Thank you, therefore, Father, that we're restored to sickness and we're restored from sickness to health. Thank you, Father, that we're restored from sin to righteousness. Thank you, Father, that by Jesus' stripes, we are healed. Sickness was born once and for all, just like sin was born once and for all. Sickness, we refuse to allow you to stay in our body. Jesus paid the price for you. His precious blood was shed. And by his stripes, we are healed. We refuse, therefore, to allow sickness to remain in our bodies. We refuse to bear sickness or disease because Jesus carried it away. The law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made us free from the law of sin and death. Therefore, we refuse to allow death to operate in us, spirit, soul, or body. Thank you, Father. We declare and we confess by faith, just as we confess that Jesus is the redeemer from sin, we confess that Jesus is our redeemer from sickness. Just as we confess that Jesus is our savior, we confess that Jesus is our healer. Thank you, Father, that we are healed. By the stripes of Jesus, according to the word of God, we believe it shall be even as it was told us. Therefore, we declare that we're healed by the stripes of Jesus, restored from sin and sickness to divine health and righteousness. In Jesus' precious name, amen. 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 Well, God bless you. Thank you for being with us.